I want to have you turn your Bibles to James chapter 2 as we continue our series uh, deep and wide. And so just to catch you up, like if you missed the first, uh, the first message in the uh, series on the 7th, first of all, go back to, uh, you, can, you can always catch up if you go to youtube.com slash Idaho Grace. Uh, you can always catch up on, on where we're at. But um, we're, we're talking about the, the, the two sides to this whole thing we call justification. And so, again, that's a big word that we don't talk about. Like probably today you didn't wake up and uh, say something to your kids about justification. Like it's not a word you throw around a lot. And so just to make sure we're, we're using the same definition, here's the definition I'm using. Very, very simple. I want you to think of this. Justification is God calling you and I, when he finds we were guilty sinners, it's God calling a guilty sinner righteous even though both he and you know that you're not, okay? So that's, that's what justification is at its most basic level. And so we talked about how this is even possible as we looked at Romans 3, 21 through 28. And it's all those uh, little prepositions in there and, and those verses that, that help us understand this. It, it, it's, it's by grace, it's by and through faith, but, but it, it matters what the object of faith is. That's Christ. And so it's in Jesus Christ. It's without works of the law. This gives us an understanding of, of what, what really is at the heart of justification. In fact, I want to call this the root of justification is faith in Christ alone. That's at, that's at the, the basis. That's the root of justification. However, there's another aspect to this. How can we tell... How can we sing this song, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine? How do you know Jesus is yours? And I don't think it's like I'm going around saying, well, let me look at you. I don't think, Charlie, you've got it. I'm sorry. Like, like it's not like, I don't think that's what it is. Or it's, it's, it's me just making these subjective judgments. Like we all have our, we all have our, our issues, you know what I'm saying? And, and so it's, it can't be that because by the way, justification is, is not the same thing as perfection. We're not going to be perfect. So, so like, like what is, you know, how, how can we be assured of this? Well, this is where we're gonna spend our time this morning. And so we, we've looked at what Paul writes in Romans 3, 21 through 28. He's gonna give us the root of justification, but now we're gonna find the, the, the fruit of justification, what James writes. Now, let me give you, first of all, a horticultural example. And I, I feel like I'm an expert because I worked in the Walmart lawn and garden department for about eight months when I was 16. So I feel pretty good about myself. Honestly, I don't at all. But anyway, uh, I want you to go ahead and show a picture, okay? And so I'm pretty sure that we got a lot of experts here in the field as well. I'm talking to some experts. Um, you know, when you look at these two pictures, is it the picture on the left or the picture on the right that you would say exemplifies a healthy fruit tree? Oh, it's on the left. Like if you say the right, you're in trouble. Like, like honestly, that's what, that's what the apples that I buy for our house look like. Like I always, from this, I go to the store and I always have this aspirational feeling about fruit. Like I'm gonna eat fruit. I'm gonna eat, I'll, I'll buy the bananas, I'll buy the apples. We have this, in fact, we even have a fruit, like little rotating thing where you put the fruit where it's easily accessible. We put it right there on the counter in front of everything. And yet that's what my apples end up looking like. The ones there on the right, anyway, so. Now you look at this and you're like, yeah, obviously the, the picture on the left, like 
we'll eat those apples. I really wanted to say, how about them apples? But I didn't, but I guess I did. But anyway, so on the left, that's, that's healthy. Like nobody wants the fruit that, that is on the right. We get that. And so while I don't know what's causing the issues there on the right, what I can say is at the very least on the left, that's a healthy tree. Roots are down. You know, the roots are below the surface. Like we don't see the roots but we can, we can see the fruit. And I want you to think of this as we read James 2. We're gonna pick up our reading in verse 14. And I want us to see what James is saying here. Look at, look at, look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? I like James. He's like a very straight shooter. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And so he responds to that, you know, he brings up that statement. He's gonna to respond to it. He says, well, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? And then he goes into analogy. And by the way, like there is so much packed in here. There's no way I can get it all to all this in one message. And so the analogy he's gonna use, we're gonna look at that next week as he picks this up in verse 21, but he goes to the life of Abraham and he says, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. That is such a very important phrase. And faith was completed by his works. It's worthy if you underline in your scripture, uh, in your Bible of underlining that. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Very interesting that what he says in verse 23 is the same exact example that Paul is using to anchor the points that he makes in Romans chapter three. So he, he goes on to say this, uh, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by his works and not by faith alone. And so we, we read this and, and that last verse, it kind of sums up our, our reading here this morning. I'll pause there and we'll pick up next week. You, you're, you're like, well, that's a contradiction. Okay, let's give, let's, let's give the early church fathers some credit here, okay? They, through prayer and through, I know, much discussion, when, they, when the canon of scripture was established, and by the way, that's a whole nother message, whole nother topic, which is awesome. Which I love that we can trust the canon, but they actually put both James and Romans in the canon and they did not see that they were contradictory because they looked at the whole of what they were saying and they understood this instead of what we do sometimes. We just cherry pick verses we're like, see, Bible contradicts one another. That's not, that's, that's not it at all. In fact, early on, if you read in Acts, by the way, anybody know what the full name of the book of Acts is? The Acts of the Apostles. It's a historical account of what happened when the church was founded. In Acts chapter 15, there's this really interesting thing that happens. There's a debate that breaks out over what do we do with these non-Jews that are getting saved, these Gentiles, because... We, we think they're not doing enough. Like they're just believing. Like they don't, they're not 
obeying the law. It ended up being this thing where the, the church, where some of the, the uh, people in the church in, in Jerusalem are getting really mad with the apostle Paul. And he, they think he's a raging liberal because of what he's letting people get by with. And so they have this big council. It's the, the first council where they bring everybody together. It's called the Jerusalem council. They all come together and all these church fathers, they, they debate. In fact, they're just going toe to toe. And finally, I, I can just see apostle Peter, man. He's my kind of guy. He's kind of gets impatient with just a bunch of talk. And he's like, can we just get get to the bottom of this. He stands up and he says, why in the world are we trying to put on these Gentiles a, a burden, talking about the law, that neither us nor our fathers could bear? What, what are we doing? And it's, it's so great because after Peter stood up and did this, like they actually got down to business and, and came up with a solution. In fact, as they prayed, they prayed about this. The Holy Spirit gave them direction. They write a letter to the Gentiles, sent it back with Paul and other leaders that said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit unto us to ask of nothing more of you than, than that you abstain, uh, from, from, uh, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from uh, eating food offered to idols and, and eating the, the blood of food. If you do these things, it will be well. And you're like, whoa, whoa, what? That's that will what they came into. Because this whole thing of, are we justified by faith in Christ alone? James and Paul both walked out, this is in 49 AD, they walk out of this council believing the same thing. And even when James, this letter was written probably four to 10 years after they had this council. It's one of the first New Testament books that we have written. It's not that James has just totally forgot everything. No, he actually believes this. He agrees with this. He just, what he's doing, he's not refuting what Paul is gonna write later in Romans. He's actually rebuking people, though, that think that faith is nothing more than intellectually agreeing with something. The faith is, is more than, than, than just, you know, well, I have right belief and I go to church. It's a lot more than that. And so what, what James is doing is bringing clarity to the definition of faith as well as clarity to what it means to be justified and what happens as a result. And so, so what he's doing is making sure that we understand justification because, you know, there are, there are words that can have multiple definitions. In fact, you know, the word awful, like, you know, you use the word awful, like, man, that was awful. Or you watched the, like, if you were a Packers uh, fan at the end of the game, you're like, that was awful. Uh, like, like you, you know what awful is, is all about in there, right, Charlie? I'm picking on you, man. That's, that's right. A Green Bay Packers fan right in the very front, man. That was awful. But did you know that, that when awful was, was first a word, you know what it meant? You were full of awe. Like, oh, that was awful. I guarantee you that's not what Charlie, Charlie was thinking. He was using another version. And so, but, but yeah, it, it originally was, oh, I'm filled with awe. And so b before guys, you go home and you tell your wives, you are an awful cook. Like that is not, that is not a good, you can't use that because now we have this definition. Well, you gotta have clarity. What are we talking about? This is what the apostle Paul is doing, making, I'm sorry, this is what James is doing, making sure that we have clarity. And what he's saying in these verses is, dude, justification is gonna be proved by the fruit. We don't know what's going on beneath the surface. We can't see the roots, but we can see the fruits. 
This is the point he's making. It's like when I was in, in college, there was a guy that I went to school with. In fact, like the first week I met him, he was from the Bahamas. And we ended up still good friends, but he was hilarious. But he, he, he told me that, like one of the first conversations, like, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a sprinter. And he said, I was actually asked to be, you know, to, to be part of the, the Bahamian Olympic team in whatever the year was. And, and I, I turned him down. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> That's not true. He's like, no, it's true. And like other guys are like, yeah, he says he's a sprinter. He's really fast. Well, that, that spring, my freshman year, we were having a, uh, they had like a school, like some picnic type thing. We're out there. And, and I don't know how it happened, but they, had, they, they ended up having a sprint contest where, you know, different guys would sprint. And, and I know I don't look like it now, but I used to be a decent sprinter back in the day. And on this particular day, I was killing it. Like I had just won every single, every single race. And, and uh, I feel, oh, I was feeling, I was feeling a little cocky. And so I went up to, went up to my buddy. I'm like, hey, you said you're a sprinter. You're gonna be part of the Olympic team. I wanna, I wanna see what it's like to run against an Olympic sprinter. And he's like, oh no, I don't, I don't wanna do it. And, and I'm like, no, come on, man. He's like, he's like, you know, I really don't wanna show people up or anything like that. And I'm like, either shut up or either put up or shut up. That's exactly what I said. And he never raced me. He just wouldn't do it. Now, here's the deal. He probably was. He probably could have blown me away and embarrassed. He probably would have humiliated me. But I will tell you this. He, I never, ever heard him tell another person he was an Olympic sprinter. Because he, he just, he wouldn't step up. There are times that you can talk a good game, but at the end of the day, it's like, what is the fruit of what you're talking about? This is what James is making sure that we understand as we jump in. And so there's something I want us to grasp because I do not want us to get confused today. And so like, it's not on your message guide, but I've got a big point that I want you to write down. You can just write it in the notes there because I wanna make sure that we get this. In fact, I'm gonna have you repeat it after me. The first part of this is we're not saved by works. Say that with me. We're not saved by works. Let's say it again like we believe it. We're not saved by works. But here's the second part, but our salvation will result in works. Okay, we're not saved by our efforts, but this transformation that God does in us, literally, like we can't help it, we will be changed. Not perfect, because he who began a good work in, in, in us and you and I, he's gonna finish it one day at the day of Christ. He hasn't finished it yet, you haven't arrived yet. However, there will be fruit. And so, man, how did James get here? What's he talking about? Well, if you go all the way back to verse five, he, he was talking about this, this sin of partiality, which is honestly simply, uh, you know, when you divide people in two different camps and you treat them differently, there's the, the group of people that you think are rich and powerful or whatever they have position and uh, you wanna get on their good side because you think they can open doors for you. And then there's the other group of people that honestly, you don't think they can add anything to your life. And so you feel like you really don't need to spend time with them. You don't show honor to them. You actually kind of condescend to them. And, and, and so he was talking, in fact, he speaks very strongly if you read in the first part of chapter two against this separating, you know, when the, the rich and powerful come in, oh, oh, hey, you come right up here. We want to give you the good seed because you want to get on their good, you know, the, the good side of them. And then the, the, the people that, you know, you don't think are gonna bring anything to the table. Well, you guys can go hang out in the, in the parking lot in the snow and watch the service on your phone. Like, like he's just saying, big difference here. He makes the point, he said, when, when, when you engage in the sin, and he calls it a sin, 
In verse five, he, he, he's making the point that he actually shows you've forgotten something. And look what he says in, in verse five. He said, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich by faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? Look at what he's doing. He's actually agreeing with what Paul wrote. We weren't justified because you, you were that good. No, we're justified because God in his grace chose you and I, not when we were, had anything to bring to the table. We were poor. We were destitute. We were naked, if you will, spiritually. And it says that, that he has called us and chosen us to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those of us who love him. And I think this whole idea of being an heir is important as we talk about this this morning. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever inherited anything? You just inherited something. Let me see your hands. Okay, you've inherited something, okay? Like I've, I've inherited one thing and it's not money. My grandma Kirkman, when she died, bequeathed to me this magnifying glass. This is what I, this is my inheritance right here. Now there's a, there's a reason behind this. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I, as soon as I get to grandma's house, she had this big roll top desk on the spindle legs and, and I'd go there and I'd push the desk open and somewhere in there with all the bills and letters and whatever, she had this and I would dig it out. And as a kid, uh, she didn't have a TV or anything like that. This was my entertainment. I was Sherlock Holmes. And so, man, I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. And so nine-year-old kids don't have a lot of intuition. So when I was nine, I, I was talking to grandma and I said, hey, grandma, when you die, She's like, why do you say that? Grandma, when you die, can I have your magnifying glass? And when, literally, my mom told me when grandma, it was when she was getting ready to die, one one of the things that she wanted to make sure, you make sure, she called me Keithy, you make sure that Keithy gets my magnifying glass. And so here we are, like, this is my, this is my inheritance. By the way, this has nothing to do with my message, but uh, so Pastor Tony and I are cousins. Not everybody knows that. Um, we share the same grandma. When, I'm, when I first moved out here, I got to share this. And you, I expect you guys to give him a hard time. When I, when I moved out here, we were like at Cracker Bell or something. We're talking. And in the midst of conversation, I, I asked him, well, I was telling him every Christmas, my grandmother would buy me either the Old Spice gift set or the Brute gift set. I, like, like, I never use it. Like, I think I gave it to my principal every year for Christmas. Like, I re-gifted, you know? But, but like, she would always do this thing where she pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, don't tell anybody. I, you know, I want to give you this Christmas present. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. So we're having this conversation. And I, and I said, Tony, I said, what, what did grandma get you for Christmas? And, and I'm taking a drink. And I, then I pick up, I'm taking a drink. And he goes, he looks at me, he's like, are you kidding? She never gave me a single thing. And dude, I, I laughed so hard. I choked. They had to be like CPR and like doing the whole Heimlich maneuver in, in uh, Cracker Barrel because I'm like, dude, I am the chosen grandchild. <laughs> so I should have, I came in this morning and, and so I laid this on his desk and I'm like, did grandma leave anything to you when you die? <laughs> she died. He did get a bowl. So I don't know who got the most, but anyway, okay. My whole point is this. Okay, let me get back to my message. Like inheritance is uh, something, it's a good thing, something that's passed on. Let me ask you a question though. What's the difference between wages and an inheritance? With wages, how do you get wages? Work for it. Yeah, you, you work, okay? Monday through Friday, Friday's payday. You work and you hope that you work well enough that they deposit that check 
in your account, but you got to work for it. Inheritance, it's money that's deposited in your bank, not because of what you did, but because of the favor of someone else. And I just want to say something real quick. It's very important as we dive into this. We don't operate as an employee when it comes, our, our confidence with God, is not, it's not a relationship of, of, of me, the employee, God, the employer. That we're working and we're, our works are hoping that on Friday, he's gonna deposit that check. We, as James is saying here in verse five, we operate and we live out of the abundance that through no, nothing we brought to the table, it was just the choosing and divine favor of God in grace. He's already deposited the money in the account. We don't have to work for it. It's already there. And that's huge. And it's, we have to understand this before we get to understanding the point that, that James is making here. He's not saying that we're justified by our works, but he's saying that our works are going to be the apple that was there on the left. It's the fruit. It's the natural abundance. We live out of that abundance, if you will. So he uses that example in verse 15 of the, the person that, you know, is poorly clothed, doesn't have food. And, and it's like the equivalent of today, like, you know, you hear that there's a, there's a need or, or a problem or whatever. And you're like, oh, I'll pray for you. Like, like there's a good, like we believe in prayer. I, I believe that prayer changes me, prayer changes things. One of the greatest gifts that God's given us. But there's sometimes, I think there are prayers that God doesn't want to listen to. Because actually God already has you in a position to answer a prayer that you're praying and you use that whole thing, or we use that whole thing. Well, I'll pray for you as an example. It's like, eh, just, I don't want to deal with this. I'll pray for you. Dude, first of all, stop and pray for them right there. And secondly, man, if you, if you can give them some groceries, give them some groceries. And he, he's, he's making this point. It's like, like, that's not like true faith. That's not what it really means to live this out. You know, he's, what, what, what he's saying is like, man, you're, you're going to have fruit that, that comes. There's going to be something. There's a natural, uh, I mean, it's a supernatural thing that, that isn't, isn't something we develop. It's literally something that the Holy Spirit is producing. Go to Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's something the Spirit produces in us to love, but it can't help but get out on us. But what he does, though, to, to make his point that, that this, this whole thing of faith being just intellectual assent, him saying that that's not enough, he uses this shocking example. He says, like, like if that's you, he says, your faith is no different than a demon's faith. And so let me just pause. Let's not just, let's, you know, you know, Jay, overhear a conversation James is having with the people he's writing to. Let's put ourselves in the story. If James was writing to us, he's writing to us, let's put ourselves in the story. Let's ask ourselves a question. Do I have a living faith, a Christ-centric faith, or do I have a dead faith? Do I have a demon's faith? I guess it's a fair question. Because when, if we're going to understand this, this is very important. Now, three points that I want to make as, as we bring this time to a close today. Number one, what, what James shows us is that demons' faith is different than no faith. It, it's, it's faith. And I would say that 
people who take on the name of Christ and have what I'm, what I'm calling here uh, the faith of demons, <laughs> I think they do more damage than an atheist because we don't expect an atheist who says they don't believe in God to act as if they follow Christ. There's an expectation of the world if we take on the name of Christ that we're actually going to follow Christ. I mean, we, we hear that, uh, that insult thrown around in political circles, rhino, Republican in name only. They call it like dino, Democrat, and they call it like, I don't know they call that, but, but the whole point is this. What James is saying is a, a demon's faith is, it just means that you're a Christian in name only. You might check the boxes, you might show up for events, you might show up for services, but there's a difference between real faith and a, and a demon's faith. This week, I came across a message that was preached literally a couple hundred years ago by the great Puritan pastor, uh, writer, Jonathan Edwards. And man, I want you to listen to his sermon title. His sermon title was True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. I'm like, that is maybe the greatest sermon title of all time. Like, I need to up the game on my sermon titles. Like, ah, that's good right there. But he makes the point that Demons possess a faith that's based on actually two very important things, good things. Number one, they have a faith that, uh, that believes sound doctrine. In fact, uh, demons have been to the greatest seminary in the universe. They were taught theology in the throne room of God. They, they <laughs> the theology of demons is better than our theology. Now, they don't allow, live in light of that. Obviously, we know the rebellion and all that sort of thing. But they believe sound doctrine. The second part that, that Edwards pointed out is that they had, or they have a respect for God, his power, his authority. This is what James is, is referring to when he talks, when he says, even the, the demons believe and shudder. Edwards points out that these demons respect the greatness of God. They're scared of God. They know what he can do. They believe in his power and they act accordingly. In fact, just prove this point. Like if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, gospels, talking about the life of Jesus. When, when demons encounter Jesus, there is never a single case where a demon tries to fight Jesus. Every single time, demons either cause the person who's demon possessed to fall at the feet of Jesus, or they, they ask what he wants them to do, wants them to do. Like, like demons have faith. And I think that it's what James is making sure that we understand why I think is so important. It's possible to believe all the right things about God, to live a very moral life, to do the right things, but to do them for the wrong reasons. We can do it out of a fear of God. We'll shudder. We're like, like we want fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. Okay, that might be an initial motivation for seeking God, but I'm gonna tell you that's a terrible motivation to live for God. It, it, it might be, oh, you know, man, I, I, I want to show how much knowledge I have and I'm going to dig in and I'm going to know and I'm going to correct everybody else on, on their doctrine and how they're, they're off and they're wrong. You can have sound doctrine, but if that's all it is, it's nothing more than a demon's faith. 
what he wants to understand is the difference between dead faith and living faith. And the second point that he wants to make sure we understand is living faith is not just right doctrine and the fear of God alone. Because you can, you can go to church every time the doors are open. You can get mad when we close on the 14 because like we should be having church. You could be the kind of person that goes to every time, I have a Bible study. You can serve, you can give, you can post Bible verses all over social media. But if you stop short at intellectual agreement alone, you have missed it. You've never come to the end of yourself because faith does not stop short with only believing the right things and even being convinced of the right things. Faith always involves action. And that's why he uses the the analogy of Abraham that we're gonna get into later. He acted on this. It is the fruit of this. And honestly, that's the last point I wanna leave you with today. Living faith has fruit. Like you can actually see this. And there are two ways that faith is alive. First of all, it's alive to other people. Secondly, it's alive to God. And and next week, I'm gonna break down the alive to God. But man, there's something beautiful when we study, man, what it means to be alive to God. We're we're not just serving him out of fear. We're not serving him uh, just out of this moralistic, let me show God how good I am. But literally being blown away understanding what God has done, who he's called us to be, how he's changed us. No, we can be alive to God, living lives of gratitude, but a living faith is a faith that works in this world here, not just in the world to come. It's for eternal life, yes, but it's for this life too. It's always alive to other people. And I would say this, if we're in the presence of poor, hurting, broken people, people very different from us, and we respond to them with scorn or indifference, there's a good chance we're the dried up tree because we don't have this living faith. And I'm saying this not to, not to like, put you on a guilt trip and like, I'm gonna go out and sign up for Love Inc. or, or whatever, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. Because again, like that, that's going back to the whole earning. But what I'm saying is that what God does is he changes us from the inside out to where we don't look at people as, dude, what is their problem? Dude, they're so messed up. No, no, we... If we do that, it just shows us we've forgotten who we were when God found us. We forget that we were naked. We were literally spiritually homeless and God clothed us. He fed us. He brought us in. It's, it's, it's literally us forgetting that we were the one who, who smelled. We were the one who had the issues. No, this is, this is something powerful when God transforms us. We remember this. And I'm gonna tell you right now, it doesn't happen overnight. Man, we grow. The spirit develops this. I will also tell you this. It's easy to get to a place and to grow and then to get to a place of complacency where you forget. And this is why we have to keep looking at the word so we continue to be reminded of this. Man, God, God is constantly hitting me. I'm a judgmental person by nature. That is how I am wired. Like I, I have been so judgmental this week at the driving of other people. I'm gonna tell you right now. 
I make judgment calls. There are times that I have been known to call someone a name that I don't even know and I'm driving like, what a moron. And it's a good reminder of the fact that, man, I need the love of God because that's not who I normally am. I gotta, I gotta land this plane. So let me just say this as, as we close. There's a lot more to this than, than what we think. And we'll, we'll finish up next, next week. But let me ask this question. Why does this whole thing of justification by faith alone matter? Well, first, I think that's an easier question to answer. Because, man, we, we don't have to work for this. Like, it's not our efforts. It's, it's what Christ has done and our confidence is in Christ alone. Like, it, it relieves this pressure of, I've got to prove something to God. I think we understand that side of the coin, why that matters. But this other side of the coin, why does what James is saying, justification by faith, it being a faith that is in Christ, but also a faith that is proved by works. Why does that matter? Why does, why does that matter? And I think that's a, a question worthy of consideration. I mean, can we all agree that our country's in a mess? Honestly, I love the city of Nampa, but I've been, I've been serving on a, something called the Healthy Nampa Initiative with other people who, who love the city as well. And I'm more convinced than ever, our Nampa, uh, Nampa, Caldwell, CUNA, wherever you call home, it's a mess. Broken people, hurting people. I started reading a book this week. Uh, it's not a Christian book, a guy by the name of Seth Kaplan. Uh, he works with like, uh, they call it fragile states. He goes like the Uganda, different countries like that where literally they're in danger of economic, you know, the economy falling apart, uh, dictators taking over. And so he works with the United Nations, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different uh, organizations. But he, but he wrote a book called Fragile Neighborhoods in which he's, he's talking about the fact that um, the, the U.S., though we have, we have our problems, we're a lot more secure in some of these areas than a lot of other countries. But he, he's pointing out that at the foundation of this whole thing, our, our communities, our neighborhoods, there's some decay there. And, 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 and so he, he takes what he's learned in other countries and says, what would it look like in, the, in communities? And he makes a point in, in his book. He alludes to the fact, and the guy is not a believer to the best of my knowledge, but he said the church was always a part of the community when the community was most healthy. And he draws, line, he draws parallels when the church start letting the government do what the church was called to do. That's when community began to break apart because what happened was Christians became like everybody else. We'll let somebody else do it. Now listen, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday in which we stand for life. Not, if you don't know this, if you're new to grace, you just need to know, we stand for life. From conception all the way to the grave, we stand for life. I'm such a huge believer in what Lifelike Pregnancy Center is doing. 
That's why they're, they're one of the organizations that we support. Not We just don't want to support them with our giving, with volunteering and, and that Stanton Healthcare. I'm such a big fan of what Stanton's doing. It's why we have Embrace Grace classes where uh, moms who are having babies and they're in tough situations, we're like, we're gonna love you, we're gonna invest in you. And I have such great appreciation for each of you that are part of that ministry. This is why for those of you that are our adoptive parents or foster parents, man, we celebrate you and we say thank you. And, and man, we wanna support you and stand with you any way we can. We, we believe this. The sanctity of life is not just me believing it up here and believing it out here and me typing it on social media. Sanctity of life is when I stand up and say, I'm gonna do something about this. I'm all for a good protest. I am full. In fact, I've been a, a speaker and I've prayed at like what they did in Boise, the March for Life. I'm all for those things. But Christian life is more than being part of events. It's living it day to day, saying, I'm going to be part of the solution. Several years ago, the mayor of Denver was approached by some area pastors and asked this question, what can we do for the city of Denver? How can we add value to the city of Denver? And the mayor who was not a believer bluntly told them this. He said, be Christian neighbors. Because he said, right now I can't tell the difference between Christian neighbors and those who, and neighbors who aren't Christians. Why does this matter? It's because of the illustrations that James uses to make his point. Because if our faith ends right here and never makes it out here, there's not gonna be any fruit. There's no difference. Why in the world would we show up for this? But if God really has transformed us, if this is real, instead of us living cowardly lives reminding one another that the world does not want what we want, which is untrue, by the way, and use that as an excuse, or I'm, I'm shy, I'm an introvert to not do anything. Dude, you know what? Boys and Girls Club needs people to serve meals. Guess what? You could serve a meal and be a shy person. There's just something about that. Again, we don't do this to prove to God that we're good enough. Take me, choose me. He's already chosen you. We do this because we've been chosen. The Holy Spirit works through us. Today, you and I are the hands and feet of Christ. And we're either doing it or we're not. The reason why this matters is this faith we've been given, this justification, this choosing, this, this, the riches of inheritance that is ours is not something we've been given that we're just gonna hoard until we get there. It's been given to us. We live out of the abundance of this because this world needs Jesus. And we get to be those hands and feet of Jesus. We are saved not of our works. We are saved by Christ's work alone. But as reformers said, that's never gonna be a faith that is alone. That faith is always gonna show up in the fruit of the works that we do. Let's be people who not just believe and are convinced, people who act. And Father, as we leave here today, 
My prayer for Grace Bible Church is not that we're the biggest church in town, that we're the wealthiest church in town, the most talented church in town, or whatever the world uses as standards of greatness. God, what I'm praying more than anything is that we would be a people who humbly understand and accept that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ's work alone. And that's it. But God, that would be also convinced that you did not intend for your church to be put on a shelf somewhere to stay pure till Jesus comes back. But you've called us to be part of this. God, you have always been about transforming cowards and making them courageous. And I pray that you would do this for your church. So God, may there never be a time that the city has to say, what we need is just Christian neighbors to be Christian neighbors. May we live it. Not because we're trying to get your approval, but we will live out of the abundance of what you've already given us. May we be your hands and feet. For what you'll do, we'll say thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Tonight, 5 p.m., next steps. If you're getting a shuttle, go to the front sidewalk over there. We'll pick you up. You're dismissed.